As the Taliban marched on Kabul and America's disastrous withdrawal from Afghanistan unfolded, one member of Congress took to the airwaves to defend President Biden, Representative Jake Auchincloss of Massachusetts. Israel, Afghanistan, Iran, and the state of partisanship in Washington. We'll talk about it all with the 33-year-old first-term member of the House of Representatives, Jake Auchincloss. Don't push pause. You're listening to Jewish Insiders Limited Liability Podcast. And welcome back to episode 24 of Jewish Insiders Limited Liability Podcast. I'm Rich Goldberg, joined by my co-pilot, dear friend, Jared Bernstein. We covered a lot of news in our last episode with Secretary Pompeo. So let's dive right in with our featured guest, shall we? Representative Jake Auchincloss is serving in his first term in Congress, where he is the vice chair of the Financial Services Committee and a member of the Transportation and Infrastructure Committee. He is a graduate of Harvard College, a Marine with service in Afghanistan, previously a city council member in the same town where he was bar mitzvah, Newton, Mass. And today he's our special guest on the podcast. Congressman Auchincloss, welcome to the podcast. Pleasure to be on. I appreciate you having me. Absolutely, absolutely. Any friend of Congressman Richie Torres, as they say, that that that's how we roll here at the Jewish Insider. You were a Marine serving in Helmand Province, Afghanistan in 2012, I believe. Almost 10 years later now, you're a freshman congressman representing your hometown and one of the most Jewish districts in America. Talk to us about that journey. Uh, take us back to your life as a Marine in Afghanistan, how that molded you, and, and sort of how you got here to Congress. That journey, I think, really starts well before I was born. My great-grandparents fled the Russian pogroms before World War I, arrived in Chelsea, and like many Jewish emigres at the time, they built a textile business and scraped by. And in fact, my great-grandmother, Clara, became something of a political force in Chelsea uh, behind the scenes in the 1920s. Uh, But they never made a whole lot of money. And my grandfather, Melvin, their son, was, uh, when he was 17 years old, tried to enlist in the Marine Corps in 1942. And this was at a time when the Marine Corps, one, was losing the war in the South Pacific, and two, when Jews in Europe were uh, in the middle of a campaign of genocide. And the United States Marine Corps looked at that 17-year-old skinny Jewish kid, no money, and sent him to Purdue to study engineering because he did well on an academic test they had given him. And I've always found that to be one of the most remarkable exemplars of American exceptionalism, that at a time when Jews were being exterminated, at a time when the Marine Corps needed every rifle they could get, a skinny 17-year-old Jewish kid with no money and no prospects went to Purdue because the U.S. government took a chance on him. He turned that into a, a brilliant career in orthopedic surgery and science. And I've always felt growing up that uh, I wanted to pay back that incredible investment that the Marine Corps made in him. And so I joined the Marines out of college myself, commanded a platoon, as you said, in Helmand, and then a, a platoon in Panama, and uh, really try to bring it full circle for the family. You know, I, I recently wrote an essay on this. Uh, I was in Afghanistan the year before you um, out of Bagram, uh, but but you and I and, and many others are, are part of the 9-11 generation, truly. Uh, take us back. We, we're a little bit past now the 20-year anniversary, but I think it's still on people's minds, obviously, with Afghanistan in the news. 
What was 9-11 like for you and how did that sort of lead you on your path? Did that did that sort of trigger these memories of, of sort of that World War II era as well for you? You know, did that have an impact on, on your path, both in the Marines and public service? It certainly did. In 9-11, I was an eighth grader and I was the editor-in-chief of the daytime, the middle school newspaper. And so I broke that news of 9-11 to F.A. Day Middle School as the editor-in-chief. I was uh, pulled out of class at the beginning of the day and we were watching that those events unfold in real time and trying our best to report on them in real time. And so that, that sort of dual responsibility is both a, you know, a a quasi reporter and also as, as just a citizen, I think seared the event into my memory in a, in a unique way. Uh, I, you know, I I wish I could say in some ways that nine 11 was a world war two moment for our generation, because I think world war two for our grandparents was an event that cultivated unity and a sense of purpose and mission that 9-11 never did. And for that, I think a tremendous amount of blame needs to go to the Bush administration because the Bush administration took a moment that was catalyzing and unifying. And over the course of their eight years, they let a counterterrorism mission mutate into a counterinsurgency mission and a boondoggle of a war in Afghanistan that could not be won. But even more fundamentally than that, they took the feelings of national unity and purpose that that 9-11 could have inspired, and they <clears throat> they really directed them towards adventurism in the Middle East with the war in Iraq and the, the insurgency in Afghanistan that should have been directed towards higher purposes. You know, imagine with me for a second that Al Gore were president on 9-11, and, and I think all of our listeners will know that that was a near-run thing. I mean, it was one vote on the Supreme Court, and he might have been. I think Al Gore would have taken this country on a different path. I think he may have said part of the reason that we are so vulnerable to these kinds of attacks is our is our incredible reliance on uh, foreign oil. And perhaps we should be looking at green energy and clean energy investments as a way of sparking energy independence in the United States and really a, as a way of establishing national security. Uh, that kind of thing sounds, I think, pretty mainstream in 2021. If he had said that in 2001, it would have been, I think, quite startling and revolutionary. But there was a moment when a president could have moved us in that direction. Al Gore could have. George Bush quite literally could not have. You know, I, I look back at the 9-11 commission report um, as we were leading up to the 20-year anniversary. And some of the blame at the time, and, and uh, you know, obviously, this is a country that had just gone through the trauma of 9-11. We're looking for answers. I don't think we should say 9-11 commission report is a perfect document, but it, it, it is at its time of the leading experts who had gone through the 1990s, made the mistakes of the 1990s, and, and experienced 2001 to reflect on what we needed to do differently. And some of the recommendations they made and some of the blame of 9-11 was we had a lack of imagination of what the terrorists could do to us. Uh, we uh, were over-reliant on over-the-horizon capabilities and not sort of taking the threat to the enemy, taking, taking the fight to the enemy, I should say. Uh, and we didn't nationally prioritize terrorism as a threat. Obviously, that's changed post-9-11. 20 years later, with the withdrawal from Afghanistan, and sort of the body politic, the war fatigue, the rhetoric of endless war, et cetera. Do you fear that we are sort of retrenching back 20 years? Are we sort of in the late 1990s in the way we're thinking about the war on terror going forward? No, I'm, I'm not worried about that. I do not think that the United States should retain 
the war footing that it had for the last 20 years vis-a-vis the Middle East and Central Asia. I don't think that th- that those regions strategic and economic importance on the world stage uh, are justify the amount of bandwidth, time, troops, materiel that were invested in them over the last 20 years. The United States should be focusing its international relations on the great race with the Chinese Communist Party and its strategic, economic, diplomatic dimensions. We should be focused on leadership for transnational challenges like climate change and public health and, yes, terrorism. But these are issues that require uh, multilateral alliances, that require a lot of soft power, and that require the credibility that when we do need to do surgical strikes, the nations of the world understand their legitimacy. Uh, And the ongoing war in Afghanistan and, and, and the war in Iraq, I think, uh, moved us backwards on those fronts. We talk about China. Uh, there have been critics of the president's decision to withdraw from Bagram uh, and to turn that over uh, when he, when we left Afghanistan. The thought being that if we had retained just a small footprint and held on to Bagram, we could have at least had a rapid response, uh, a capability to support the Afghan military, but also an outpost in a very key region vis-a-vis China. Um, you know, I, I think you have been critical of that decision in the past, even though you've largely supported the president's on uh, the withdrawal. Uh, I mean, how big is that sort of failure to, of planning to to give up Bagram, and and what should the accountability be for that? Well, I've called for an investigation. I, I have been hesitant to be critical because you can't armchair quarterback a twenty-year war without all the information. And for that reason, I I added an amendment to the NDAA, to the defense authorization that gives the Afghanistan commission subpoena power to declassify and access decision-making documents from the last 20 years, from 9-11 to today. Because we've got to understand better uh, over the course of four administrations, why we were doing what we did. That's how we can evaluate decisions like Bagram and also how we can hold to account those who misled the public and how we can ideally prevent these mistakes from being made in the future. So uh, I, I think Bagram is one area that needs investigation, but I'm not ready to slam the table and say it was a huge mistake uh, because you don't have a small, you don't have a small footprint in Bagram. Bagram's the size of a small city. So you don't keep a couple hundred troops there. You, you'd have probably have to have thousands and you can question our retrograde from Bagram, which did, a, it seems like that allowed the Taliban to decarcerate uh, some prisoners who are pretty dangerous without necessarily suggesting that we needed to have held Bagram permanently going forward. Uh, you know, one area that, that you had alluded to earlier is this over the horizon counterterrorism capability and that we had relied on it too much in the 90s and and perhaps we're relying on it too much today and that Bagram would have given us a more direct capability. I, I would suggest that over the horizon CT is, is very different than it was 25 years ago. We have human and signals intelligence that were unimaginable 25 years ago. We've got unmanned aerial systems that were unimaginable 25 years ago. Uh, special operations and intelligence have a much tighter feedback loop with each other in terms of uh, gathering intelligence from their direct attacks and then sharing that intelligence laterally to enable the next attack. So we've gotten really good at OTH counterterrorism. And I don't think that the need to neutralize people who have the capability and the intent to strike the U.S. homeland requires an infantry footprint there. I mean, we're doing it in dozens of countries, North Africa, Middle East, Central Asia, and only in a couple of them have we ever had a sustained 
uh, sort of conventional forces presence. Afghanistan, though, being landlocked without a true border country where we can have a base of operations out of. Obviously, we've left the Central Asian countries. Now that negotiation possibly continues in 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 secret right. with the Biden administration. Yeah, it's tougher. Uh, you know, you, you, it, it, it's a lot tougher to maintain that 24-7 ISR coverage to be able to support that kind of over-the-horizon threat, but I, but I take the point. Uh, last question on, uh, on Afghanistan. I, I want to move uh, towards the Middle East and sort of the state of politics on Capitol Hill. Uh, the Taliban, um, the UN itself continues to report that the Taliban is closely tied at the hip with al-Qaeda still. Um, sort of the narrative of a Taliban 2.0, a, a nicer, better Taliban, does not seem to be real. It seems to be sort of a mythology to, to perhaps politically sell the withdrawal. Uh, where do you come down on the idea of recognition of the Taliban, financial support to the Taliban, potential sanctions on the Taliban? What should be our posture now that we are out going forward with respect to the Taliban government? We shouldn't be granting these international benefits, whether it's financial or diplomatic, without improvements on the ground. This is the leverage that we have, and we need to use it sparingly and to effect. So no, we should not just be out of the gate granting them recognition, for example, or uh, and I know that they're pushing for it. We need to see that they are continuing to work with us on allowing for the processing of immigrant visas and, and if necessary, for the continued evacuation of any Americans who are there. We need to see that they are respecting a, a baseline of human rights and their record so far has been troubling. Uh, you know, you'd mentioned that, that the idea of a Taliban 2.0 is a fiction. I think we should have deep distrust of any promises that the Taliban make about their own behavior. What does to me suggest the the opportunity for progress, though, is that the society that they are inheriting is different than it was two decades ago. Literacy has doubled. More, infinite mortality has halved. Access to electricity has quadrupled. There's 10 times as many kids in school as there were 20 years ago, including 5 million girls in school. And so they're, they're taking over a society with different expectations. Now, can they roll those back? Yes, they could. But that does not mean that, that it, it's not a fait accompli. Uh, a positive byproduct of us being there over the last 20 years, of course, which is sort of the the tension of not wanting to be over there, but also the benefits to Afghan society of us having been there. Yes. And this, I think this is an important point is that the, the, the coverage on Afghanistan. And I think all of us to a certain extent are complicit in this. Me, me too. Is, is always, it's reductive into the sense that it's always binary win or lose, right? It's more complicated than that. This is a country with an incredibly nuanced history and, over the course of 20 years, the United States made a ton of mistakes. We wasted a lot of time, troops, treasure, but good things happen too. And we should have a narrative that appreciates both the benefits as well as the severe detriments of the U.S. occupation. I'd love to zoom out a little bit on the state of play in Congress today. Our, our very first guest, uh, way back when in January when we started this podcast, Congressman Richie Torres uh, of New York, described in media reports as your best friend in Congress. Um, a funny story, I accidentally referred to him as Congressman Richie in our second episode. Uh, so that's been his nickname for me on this show from now on. Uh, make sure he knows that. Uh, but but no, seriously, tell our listeners about that relationship, about your friendship, how that came about, and, and sort of how it's uh, played out in Congress. Richie and I connected before we took office last fall and just immediately found 
both a personal and an ideological affinity in how we approach politics. Both of us had been city councilors before. Both of us uh, are are on the young side, obviously, for new members of Congress. And we are both deeply progressive in, I think, the the fundamental sense of the word, which is to say you're willing to overcome short-term frictions and transaction costs to achieve longer-run, higher higher states. You're unwilling to let the status quo impede, uh, impede progress, but we're also invested in politics as a, a, a pursuit of negotiation and of, uh, of trying to, sh- de- trying to demonstrate that Washington can actually effectively legislate. Both of us come from city council backgrounds where at the local level and for all the, for all the friction of local governance, it's solutions oriented. At the end of the day, you got to take the trash out. You got to pave the roads. You got to build the schools. You got to make sure the dog parks are getting the, uh, getting the, the investments that they need. And we want to bring that solutions oriented approach to Washington as well. And so he and I have really hit it off. We were together on January 6th for, for much of that evening, kind of both of us processing the, those events. And we've been continuing to work together on financial services, on especially on housing issues, which are really Richie's uh, prime, prime area of focus and where he's already established himself as a tremendous moral voice in Congress. Have you been surprised at how staunchly supportive uh, Congressman Torres has been on, on Israel no, issues? because he's been very clear about what he believes. You know, it actually leads me to a question, and that is, you know, we had Congressman Torres on just after January 6th, as you mentioned, when you, when you guys got to know each other better. And, and the question at the time was, after something like this, can we restore bipartisanship in Washington? Because it really felt like, I mean, if anybody was on their social media feeds, it was just gone. And he was very hopeful. He really, you know, when he talked about some of the bipartisan initiatives he was going to start with. Almost nine months later to the day, is bipartisanship alive in Washington? Is it happening behind closed doors? We just don't see it on television. Are, are, are you involved in it? What's the state of sort of the, the bipartisanship of Washington? Today? I would make the question bigger than that, actually. I think bipartisanship gets held up as a proxy for how democracy is working. And I would, I would a little bit push back on that. Our constitution was designed to be bicameral. It was not necessarily designed to be bipartisan. And the question for me is not how many R's and D's are on a piece of legislation. It's whether our approach to legislation is curiosity-driven, whether we're trying to learn about how the world works and improve it collaboratively, and whether we come to these conversations in a spirit of inquiry, or whether it's, uh, it's polarized, whether people come to the table 100% certain that they have the right answer and unwilling to broach any feedback. That's, that is to me the deeper question about the state of our politics. And I am hopeful, yes, that democracy can function, but I also see that we have some institutional impediments ahead of us. The, the prime one to me is the filibuster. We cannot legislate effectively in Congress with the filibuster. And that's not a Democratic statement or a Republican statement. That's a parliamentary statement. It just doesn't work. When 14% of Americans through their senators can veto any legislation that comes out of the House, 
we no longer are actually governing to reflect the will of the American people. And we've got to take a long, hard look at the history of the filibuster, which is really a bludgeon against civil rights, and decide whether it still serves the purposes of the 21st century. Counterpoint, as a former Senate staffer, I, I was a House staffer as well, but uh, I'll, I'll defend the institution for a moment. Uh, there is a thought that without the filibuster, we have the possibility of the tyranny of the majority at any given moment that the filibuster the senate the deliberative process the ability to slow things down while frustrating in the legislative process frustrating to perhaps the general public at any given moment does preserve minority rights and while as you say the history of it may actually be ironic um, going forward it, it it could be something that is, you know, when the Dem- when Democrats are in minority, it preserves Democratic rights. When Republicans are in the minority, it preserves Republican rights, and therefore sort of keeps the country somehow in the middle. Um, you know, preserves, defends against that tyranny of the majority. How would you respond to that type? First of is just the historical context, which is it's ironic to defend a, a maneuver like the filibuster as defending minority rights when really since Reconstruction has been used to to undermine the civil rights for for minorities in the United States. Number two, though, and I do take your point about the Senate being an institution that, as Washington said, is meant to be the cream to the coffee of the House, right? It's meant to cool things down start th- um, and, and prevent anything from getting too hot at one point or another and keep us responsive to the median American. Uh, we can still do that. The Senate, first of all, the Senate structurally is a minoritarian institution in the sense that because it represents land and not people, there are uh, a huge disproportionate sway to the rural states in the Senate. And so just by the structure of the way the Senate is elected, it represents, uh, it, it, it is not going to be responsive to the majority of the United States. So, but we can also put in maneuvers that give individual senators or coalitions of senators who represent a plurality, perhaps, but not a majority, uh, disproportionate sway. I think that's totally fair. And I agree with you. The Senate should move slowly. It should move deliberatively. We should allow people to slow things down. We should allow people to debate things. We should ensure that uh, unpopular or minority viewpoints are listened to. I'm in favor of all of that. And there's a lot of shades of gray between needing 51 votes to get anything done and having 40 votes be able to just torpedo any piece of legislation. So let's figure out let's figure out how to do that, but it's got to start with getting rid of the filibuster as it currently exists. Do you view Israel today as still a bipartisan issue? Do you think that the the staying power of Israel as is a bipartisan issue is there is lasting? Obviously we have members of your caucus who get a lot of news attention. We had the recent Iron Dome vote, et cetera. Uh, what is, in your view, sort of the state of the democracy conversation as it relates to to Israel on Capitol Hill? Support for Israel right now is a bipartisan issue. I think the Iron Dome vote underscores that. More than 415, I think, representatives in the vast majorities of the respective parties voted in favor of Iron Dome support. I do think that's shifting. I think that on college campuses across the country and in high schools across the country, being anti-Zionist is increasingly being conflated with being progressive. And those of us who care deeply about Israel's security and the U.S.-Israel relationship need to be 
watchful and need to be responsive to this to this current because I think we can appreciate that what's being discussed in the college debating rooms of 2021 is going to be discussed in the halls of Congress in 2035. In some ways, it seems like that's been true for what you know happened in colleges for 2011. Now, perhaps playing out for some in Congress in, in 2021. You recently introduced a bill to create a U.S.-Israel Artificial Intelligence Research and Development Center, bipartisan. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that bill and what that center would do? It's meant to build upon the astounding success of U.S. economic relations. And as a representative from Massachusetts, it's especially important to me because the relationship between Massachusetts and Israel is so rich culturally, economically, intellectually, we would not have a cybersecurity industry, for example, in Massachusetts, one of the jewels in the crown of Massachusetts industry, if we did not have a strong Israeli expat community here, uh, and if we did not have uh, robust exchange. I, I recently worked hard uh, in helping to get uh, direct flights resumed between Boston and Tel Aviv, for example, for this reason, and that this kind of exchange is is so important to us as a state. And so the the AI lab is just sort of one more dimension in the, that we can cooperate. Israeli and American scientists are some of the leaders in artificial intelligence. And it's a chance for us not just to advance the science and technology, but also to advance the ethics around the use of AI and to do it in a way that further grounds our shared values. I want to turn to Iran uh, for a moment, if I could. When, when you were running for Congress, you said you supported the Iran nuclear deal, disagreed with President Trump's decision to leave the deal, but acknowledged that time had continued to move on, and by the time you'd be seated, the sunsets of the JCPOA, as it's called, would be so much closer that it probably wouldn't make sense to just return to the old deal. There would need to be something new. Here we are. It's October. We're that much closer to those sunsets. The administration has gone the last you know eight months. Uh, and it does not seem that the policy today of simply asking Iran to return to the old deal is is working. Do you think it's time for a different Iran strategy from the White House? We've, we've had classified discussions with the White House on their approach to Iran. I'm confident they are being thoughtful, deliberative, substantive in their approach to Iran. Obviously, I can't share all the details of those conversations, but uh, I, I know that the president and his closest advisors have Israel's security top of mind when they're thinking about this issue. There's really, there's at least three big domains that we need to be addressing when we address Iran. One is their ballistic missile program, which is in some ways actually the, the most near-term threat to Israel's security. The other is their development of a nuclear weapon, of course. Uh, and their third is their funding of proxy terror groups throughout the region. And I know that there is sometimes the aspiration, the conviction that we need to solve all three at the negotiating table or take all three off the negotiating table. But really, those three things can be can be addressed in, in three different ways, from the spectrum of from soft all the way to hard power. And what I have been raising to the administration and what I ex what I would like to see from the administration is a, is a nuanced approach to how we're going to deal with those three different issues and in continuing to keep Israel's security top of mind as they do so. Uh, very similar to the Macron plan, as I recall, it was laid out. Uh, it could be called the Auchincloss Macron plan going forward with the, with the buckets uh, to work on. Uh, I, I would say um, 
it's striking you bring up these different elements and in fact we have uh, over the years congress has passed sanctions imposed sanctions for each of those different sort of lines of effort of iranian bad behavior there's missile sanctions there's nuclear sanctions there's terrorism related sanctions especially targeting the irgc one of the big debates i think that has gone on inside the administration and and will continue with congress is if you're at the table uh, in vienna uh, and Iran says, we'll go back to the JCPOA and you know cut down our enrichment and our stockpile, but we want you to lift all the sanctions tied to terrorism when you do it, because that's where a lot of the money is that goes to the IRGC. It sort of gives up a lot of our leverage on the right. terrorism bucket. Um, I, do you think that, that, you know, would you recommend to the administration keep terrorism sanctions in place? negotiate sort of separately from that with what you need to do on the nuclear program without getting into specific negotiating strategies what i would agree with you on is that the world has changed in the last six years and i think it's changed more to the benefit of the united states and israel vis-a-vis iran at this negotiating table i think we've seen with the abraham accords that israel maybe not right now but has the prospect of a series of encircling not alliances, but partnerships uh, with Sunni states. I think we've seen that Iran, when it is attacked in surgical operations that neutralize some of their highest ranking officials, is actually less violent in response than might be expected. I think we've seen that Iran's domestic situation is increasingly precarious, and the relationship between their president and, and the Supreme Ayatollah uh, is is not extremely aligned. And so I, I think that we need to recognize newfound leverage when we have it and bring that to the negotiating table. Uh, a couple more questions. One is um, th- there are concerns um, stemming from the discovery by the Israelis a few years ago of the, the nuclear archive uh, that we didn't know existed when the JCPOA was signed that has apparently led to a lot of IAEA international investigations uh, into potential undeclared nuclear sites that have been discovered, material that particles of uranium that's been discovered there you you were you likely um uh, briefed uh, uh, beyond what, what what we have today um is that something that should be treated on a separate track uh, from whatever they do on the jcpoa uh in vienna because it, it, it does seem to be different in nature right it's not it's not about their commitments on the jcpoa on enrichment this seems to be something that predates the jcpoa really goes to sort of their undeclared nuclear activities of old, perhaps ongoing. That investigation, which is really a NPT issue, a nuclear non-proliferation treaty, should that continue regardless of what happens on JCPOA? I think the, you always want to make the sphere of negotiation as big as possible so that as you as you log roll, you have enough to work with. So no, I would want to tie it in, I think. But it also, I think, provides important context for these negotiations because it demonstrates in, in an odd way that uh, it y- you kind of know that they're probably going to be cheating <laughs> in some way or another. But it is it, the question you got to ask yourself is, is it easier to have some footprint, some surveillance, some amount of enforcement, and to keep as much of it in daylight as possible, and to raise the stakes for noncompliance, or to send it all underground and have it proceeding when you have no eyes on it at all? And I, you don't have to have trust you don't even have to have mutual respect to negotiate. You just have to have a clear-eyed sense of one another's red lines. 
And for that reason, I'm a, I'm a continued advocate for diplomacy in regards to the nuclear program with Iran, because uh, they have shown a capability and, of, of course, a willingness to proceed with nuclear development in ways that does evade uh, surveillance and sanctions for, for long periods of time. Last question on Iran. There was a law that Congress passed during the JCPOA fight, uh, the Iran Nuclear Agreement Review Act, or ANARA, requires the president to come to Congress potentially for a vote of disapproval on any nuclear deal with Iran before lifting sanctions. A lot of uh, experts have looked at this and said, because of where Iran is today in excess uh, of their limits, uh, because of issues like the nuclear archive, uh, sanctions that were imposed that didn't exist before the JCPOA, it would be, from a technical legal perspective, hard to argue that even just going back to the deal isn't still a new agreement um, under the law. Would you expect the White House to come to Congress still and notify of any agreement that's reached in Vienna uh, for a potential vote under ANARA? I, I may be old-fashioned, but I would expect the White House to get the approval of the Senate for a treaty, which is what it says in the Constitution. And I know we did this this workaround where it became a majority vote in Congress in both houses for the JCPOA. But, I mean, it's in the Constitution. You sign a treaty, you get the approval of the Senate. And I'd like to see, along a range of issues, the executive have more deference to the Senate's role in particular in foreign policy making. We need to amend the War Powers Resolution so that we underscore that any hostilities overseas or any sustained hostilities overseas gets the approval of Congress, uh, given our Article One authorities over war, and that treaties get the approval of the Senate. Congressman, one last question, and then uh, definitely want to get to our favorite lightning round questions. Uh, you represent one of the biggest Jewish districts in the country. You're also a member of that Jewish community, grew up there. What do you see as that community's biggest set of issues right now? The Jewish community has always been committed to social justice, and that that persists. Concern over uh, racial inequity, economic inequity in this country, concern over uh, uh, the lack of voting rights and uh, hunger. These are these are areas that have animated the Jewish people for dec for decades and indeed centuries. And I continue to see just incredible engagement from my Jewish constituents on these issues. It really makes me very proud to represent the district and to be a part of that community. I also see acutely concern over anti-Semitism. Uh, Jews, and I've said this as I've toured temples and congregations around the district to hear from folks, Jews, unfortunately, are the canary in the coal mine for hate. We know from long experience that in whatever guise hate initially surfaces in a community, whether it's anti-Semitic or not initially, it, Jews are always on that list. And for that reason, I think our antennae are more sensitive and a little bit longer for, for this. And I, I do hear from my constituents just a concern about hate broadly in the United States, whether it's anti-Asian hate related to COVID, uh, 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 racist hate, or anti-Semitism. And uh, they, they want to see members of Congress and indeed elected officials at all levels represent their values on these subjects and also advance key priorities uh, to to ensure that we are we are forcefully pushing back on this. Lightning round time, Congressman. Favorite Yiddish word or phrase? Chutzpah. Ah, chutzpah. Chutzpah. Uh, you're uh, just preceding you. Actually, I, we need to go back and look at what 
um, Congressman Torres's was. Uh, I, I don't have it off the top of my head. I, I wonder if it was Klitsch, but that would be that would be crazy. Um, but uh, but we've we've asked everybody that. Um, I think the last one, our last guest, Secretary Pompeo, had Kvetch, but chutzpah is excellent as well. Uh, favorite Jewish food? Uh, my grandmother, uh, matzo ball soup. I mean, my grandmother used to make it all the time. Mm, that sounds good. Uh, what's the last book you read, and would you recommend it? Uh, it's not the last book I read, but I really enjoyed a short history of Europe and would, would would highly recommend it. It gave just incredible both narrative but also context for the state of affairs in Europe today over the course of about 2,500 years of history. And it's it's brief and readable. Final question. Dunkin' Donuts or Sam Adams? Dunks, for sure. Oh, there we go. Well, here from Chicago, I must say Dunkin' Donuts uh, steals my heart as well. So excellent, excellent, excellent interview. Thank you, Congressman Auchincloss, for joining us. Uh, we appreciate your time uh, in the future. Maybe we will uh, bring on for a special episode you and Congressman Richie, Richie Torres, uh, together. Um, and in the meantime, we appreciate you being here and look forward to having you back. I'm seeing him tomorrow. I'll let him know you say hi. Sounds good. Thanks, Congressman. Be well. Great to have the congressman on. Great interview. Definitely a rising star. And hopefully he reports back to Congressman Richie about his experience here. Of course, Congressman Richie Torres. But uh, as we talked about, a little bit of a joke on my part. If you like the show, help us get the word out to other people. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And most importantly, please tell your friends because that's the best recommendation we can get. Until next time, this is Limited Liability Podcast. Thanks for listening. 